Welcome to the Public Morality. For nearly 50 years, the evangelical church has been defined largely as white, conservative, and overtly Republican. But my guest, Dr. Soon Chan Ra, offers a different vision for the 21st century evangelical church, one that is more diverse and more theologically honest. Professor Ra is the Robert Munger Professor of Evangelicalism at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. He is the author of numerous books, including The Next Evangelicalism, Freeing the Church from Western Cultural Captivity. Professor Su Chan Ra, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. Good to be here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's begin our conversation by having you define, uh, how would you define the evangelical church? So we we, we start with the softball questions first here. (laughs) Well, that's the question of the hour in many circles right now. What is the definition of evangelical? And I would actually split that into two parts. Uh, Lowercase evangelical with a lowercase e and uppercase evangelical with a capital E. And lowercase evangelical, I would argue, is a longstanding historical uh, theological ecclesial reality. And uh, that lowercase evangelical encompasses several thousand years of church history. Uh, goes back to the early church in the book of Acts, uh, the early church uh, throughout uh, the first three centuries. Uh, you can even trace it back to the Protestant Reformation, trace it back to kind of many different iterations and expression where there were communities that really held uh, a high view of the scriptural text, the Bible, a high understanding of who Jesus is, um, and a real kind of um, a zeal for conversion, a real zeal for salvation for lost souls. Uh, those would be some of the very basic theological definition of evangelicalism with a lowercase e. Uh, I think what we're talking about oftentimes, though, in the public arena anyway, is the uppercase evangelicalism that has been dominant in kind of U.S. American religious history and religious uh, understanding for the last 50 plus years. And that emerges more out of a sociological context where there were a number of lowercase evangelicals who began to meet together and form coalitions. Uh, form uh, relational networks, um, began to shape denominations, um, start seminaries and Christian colleges and publications and uh, even uh, ministries that reached out to the poor and uh, global networks and uh, evangelistic um, mission-oriented communities. Um, And that is really based on some of these sociological connections. And that's where I think some of the problematic pieces have emerged because that sociology has tended to be white, upper middle class, maybe Republican politically. Um, And that definition of evangelical is now more the prominent and dominant one rather than the other definition of evangelical, which is a much broader encompassing terminology. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, immediately following 9-11, we saw a number of churches across the nominational lines, uh, many, I should say, faith communities in, in, uh, more specifically. Um, we saw a spike in attendance. Now, yeah. now America's confronted with a different crisis, obviously, the, 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 the global pandemic. And most uh, faith, if not all faith uh, centers, were closed. What might, yeah. what might those church faith communities in general look like? Uh, from your perspective, in a post-COVID world? What does that look like? 
Well, 9-11 is an interesting benchmark because we did see that spike. And some of it is that 9-11 lended itself to some of the more conventional means of doing church. Um, and that goes, again, back several decades now. The conventional means of doing church is gathering in a building in a particular location um, and maybe affirming the things that uh, we hold dear in, in, in American social, social life. Um, things like community, but also things like American exceptionalism, uh, things like um, uh, the right to consume products that are helpful for our economy and to help our economy boom. And so the narrative that emerged out of 9-11, uh, this kind of American-centric exceptionalism, triumphalism, we're going to beat this thing, we have a common enemy, uh, that kind of lended itself to the possibilities of church life kind of jumping onto that narrative. Um, and so maybe that would attribute, uh, that can be contributed to the spike in attendance uh, post 9-11. Uh, the, the challenging part of COVID is that the ways that church life has worked for the last 50 years, COVID prevented. Um, we rely on going to a nice building and gathering together. We rely on some of the services that uh, churches can provide uh, programming for our, our youth and our kids, uh, music that makes us feel good, uh, preaching that makes us feel good. Uh, those are the kind of things that actually um, COVID prevented uh, because we were not allowed to meet in public spaces, because we were not allowed to gather together. And uh, now, of course, many churches went online, but it was not the same thing. And so COVID was kind of a game changer in that it didn't fit some of the patterns of church life that we had established over the years. Now, you, you sort of touched on this in your, your initial answer about the uppercase E in evangelical and the lowercase E in yeah. evangelical. Um, and, but it seems to me, from my perspective, those things, just based on that initial answer, those things get interchanged in our public discourse. Yeah. And so the, the widely held belief is evangelical is synonymous with white conservative theology. Yes. How val I mean, in, 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 from your lens, how valid is that? And what should people maybe f add to that to that equation that they're not factoring in? Well, well that's the, the dilemma. Um, I would say that evangelicalism, lowercase e, um, whether you agree with it or not, there were theological ecclesial markers, as I mentioned before, kind of belief in scripture, belief in who Jesus is, belief in the active life of the church. Those were kind of standard things that have been around for several thousands of years. Uh, and those are theologically defined. Again, whether you agree with them or not, that's really not necessarily the issue. But what happened was, I think in the last 40, 50 years, is that theological ecclesial definition of evangelical became more of a sociological definition of evangelical and maybe even more problematic for many, it became more of a political definition of evangelical. And so that iteration, the kind of the, the evolution of evangelicalism has been very notable over the last 40, 50 years, that the conversations we were having 50 years ago was about is uh, is evangelicalism a reformed theology or a fundamentalist theology? Is it a Pentecostal theology or is it a Methodist theology or an Arminian theology? Uh, those were the conversations we were having 50 years ago, and they tended to be along biblical theological terms. But now the defining of evangelicalism is, as I said earlier, uh, if you are a white person living in Midwestern affluent or a Southern suburb or rural area, and you are politically conservative, 
Um, you are someone who holds to kind of the Republican values of family. You know, there, there are a lot of things associated now with the evangelical label that feels more sociological and in the last five years, much more political than it is theological and ecclesial. That's the problematic piece right now. We're going from theological definition to a sociological definition to what is now almost exclusively a political definition. And what leaves out are the lowercase evangelicals who are not only evangelical in their theology, but uh, in the, but they're not evangelical in that sociological identity. So those who are people of color who are evangelical theologically, but really don't connect the political agenda of uh, uppercase evangelicalism uh, and, and won't fit sociologically because they are maybe African-American living in the urban context, a second generation Latino immigrant uh, living in rural context. It doesn't connect with the sociological assumptions around evangelicalism and certainly politically there's a disconnect. So this kind of um, captivity of the phrase evangelical by upper middle class, white, conservative, uh, Republican, you know, uh, sociological identity has actually hurt the brand of evangelicalism because there are many mother, many, many other evangelicals who identify themselves as theologically evangelical, but certainly not sociologically and politically so. Uh, I, I know that um, part of your background that you, you, you passed in that, in that uh, religious bedrock known as Boston, Massachusetts. And, <laughs> and you had, and you talk about this, I've heard you talk about that um, there's a Korean church, there's a black church, yes. there's, there's a, a yes. Hispanic church, under this mantra of evangelical, so to speak, but yet yes. you're still, how do you release yourself from these shackles that just the average person might see that, that this is a racist, homophobic, misogynistic faith? How do you release yourself from those shackles? That's where it's so problematic right now. Um, when I, I wrote a book on called The Next Evangelicalism about 12 years ago, and it was actually kind of hopeful, uh, hopeful that evangelicalism would not be captive and captive captured by this, uh, the, the white-centric, um, white supremacy um, narrative of American exceptionalism, that those narratives would not define evangelicalism going forward. Uh, mainly because there were Korean churches that were uh, had a different perspective on on um, on community life, uh, African American churches that had a different perspective on race, uh, Latino communities that had a different perspective, and so these other other evangelical groups. Um, my hope had been twelve years ago that these would the, would be the groups that would more. Um, define what is evangelicalism in the public sphere, but that's not what happened. What happened was that the white, uh, you're talking about the homophobic, the misogynistic, uh, the more politically conservative, as well as a lot of what happened with Trump evangelicalism, that's kind of, that became a term as well, Trump evangelicalism, that that became the dominant way of looking at what is evangelicalism. So I think 12 years ago when I wrote the book, I, my thought was we could have a new iteration of evangelicalism that is focused on these theological biblical terms that looks different because it is not just coming from white middle-class suburban America. It is coming from other communities, people of color and immigrant communities. And that could 
not necessarily change the theology of evangelicalism, but change the sociology of evangelicalism. And unfortunately, that, that is not what happened. Um, so the question now for many people of color who are still in the evangelical sphere is, is this place too hostile for us now? And it is, is this not a safe place for us? Um, and there have been a number of research projects that have been done that showed that evangelicals of color are leaving the evangelical world because uh, the evangelical world is now defined socially, politically, rather than theologically, biblically. Uh, in some cases, I would say, as an evangelical of color, um, you didn't. I didn't move. The marker moved. Like what defines evangelicalism got moved, and the way I understand evangelicalism now is not what I signed on for 40, 50 years ago. What I signed on for 40, 50 years ago was this biblically based, uh, theologically rooted movement, and what it is now is not what was originally brought me into evangelicalism. So that's why a significant number of evangelicals of color are saying, this is not what we signed on for. So we're going to find our way out as of, of this sphere. So, so, so if, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, that let, let's just use 1980 as a benchmark when you, when you saw the, the, the moral majority and, 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 yeah. and, 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 and Christian leaders moving toward the Republican Party and Ronald Reagan specifically. So what I'm hearing you say is the beginning of that movement that what we have now is sort of the ramifications of those those decisions some 40 years ago. Yeah, and it's interesting how what happened 40 years ago replayed in 2016 and 2020. Right, so think about 1976, where a pretty clearly political—I'm uh, sorry—where pretty clearly a theologically, biblically evangelical swept into the political office, Jimmy Carter. Yeah. You can't get more evangelical than Jimmy Carter. He was a—he was a Southern Baptist who taught Sunday school and you know talked about confessing his sins and trying to live a, a godly life. I mean, we're talking about a a, a pretty clear biblical, theological, ecclesial definition of evangelical Jimmy Carter. And yet he's voted out of office in 1980 by evangelical voters who sided with Ronald Reagan, of all people, who is who's absolutely the opposite of what biblical theological evangelicalism would be defined as. He's from California. He's, uh, you know, he's a former actor. He's divorced. He's, you know, never really been had a, a consistent record of church attendance in contrast to Jimmy Carter, the Sunday school teacher. And yet evangelicals voted for Ronald Reagan in huge numbers. And so that was a foreshadow of what we saw in 2016 and 2020, where evangelicals vote in huge numbers, uh, not for a candidate that reflected their values, not for a candidate that said, you know, I, I I go to church and I and I pray and you know I want to see the kingdom of you know he had none of that language. Uh, his language was political conservatism, uh, American exceptionalism, kind of an anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim. That became more of what brought people into the um, into the uh, 2016 2020 election into the Trump camp, because he certainly didn't have the evangelical language, and neither did Ronald Reagan. Uh, Carter had it, and yet he was voted out of office. So we're seeing these patterns where evangelicalism is, again, more and more defined not by a theology or by an ecclesiology. It is really more defined by a political position or political affiliation. Um, you know, just listening to you, you talk, I mean, 
is it, could we also posit that it's even larger than the white evangelicals' uh, influence on on evangelicalism, uh, lowercase or uppercase, but that yeah. it's also really defining what many people think Christianity as a whole is. And we can have a whole discussion on what, what is Christianity. Absolutely. But, but isn't that part of the issue here as well, that it's sort of defining a, an entire um, orthodoxy? And that's that's a very, very um, um, significant statement to think about Christianity in the aggregate and, you know, we should really think about Christianity on the global scale. Um, on the global international level, Christianity is flourishing. Uh, many people in the U.S. are lamenting and, uh, and really upset about the decline of Christianity in the United States. Um, but Christianity on a global scale is absolutely flourishing. Christianity in Africa is growing, Asia, Latin America. Uh, and it's different expressions as well in the, the Catholic Church that is growing in Latin America, the Pentecostal churches that are growing in Africa. Uh, we're talking about a, a worldwide movement that has multiple nuances to it. And American or U.S. forms of evangelicalism is just one of those iterations or one of those expressions. And I think we give it a lot of power because of its political standing, uh, not so much its theological standing. Again, if we were to look at the global Christian movement, we would see that it is extraordinarily diverse. Um, the expectation is that within the next 30 years, uh, about 80% of the Christians in the world would not be of European descent. There will be people of color in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the United States as well. So I think the, the, the problematic piece of it is defining Christianity through exclusively the lens of evangelicalism. That's problematic uh, because there is a whole world of Christianity out there that is very different from the evangelical expression in the United States. In a number of uh, public opinion polls that I've read, uh, it, it, it seems that there's a clear pattern that mm -hmm. white Christians, I mean, I'm going sort of beyond even evangelical, but white Christians yeah. in, the, in the larger sense are more likely than whites who don't attend church yeah. Uh, to deny the existence of structural racism. And yeah. would you agree with that? Or do you see it differently? How would you assess the, that, those findings? There's been, some, there's been some great sociological work on this. Um, my former provost, Michael Emerson, has done some really good work on this and trying to understand why is it that it seems that American evangelicalism in particular seems to work in the opposite direction uh, versus, for example, historic black churches where those in historic black churches um, understand the reality of structural racism and those in evangelical churches really focus on, no, there's no such thing as structural racism. So these are structural problems. These are things that are going on in the systems of the white evangelical church and the systems of the black church. Um, and what we're seeing is the white evangelical church, and I've written about this and using the phrase cultural captivity, the white evangelical church reflects more the values and the culture of a European North American philosophy, which is hyper-individualism, right? So in Western context, individualism is the central way we understand the world. Now, to be honest, the Bible doesn't focus like that. The Bible talks about the people of God, the nation of Israel, the church in Corinth, etc. But the Western version of it really focuses on the individual. And so what you have are these churches in the United States, evangelical churches or white churches in general, who focus on this 
uh, Western philosophical concept of individualism, your personal salvation, your individual faith. And that creates a barrier or prevents um, individuals in these churches from understanding structural sin. Um, and again, that's not a biblical value. The biblical value is understanding of corporate sin and, and structural evil. That's in the Bible. It's more that the Western value of individualism supersedes the biblical value. And that's what I mean by cultural captivity. When the church's value system is more reflective of the culture, uh, some of the dysfunctional cultural values, rather than what the, the the holy text might actually speak to them about. And so that's why you'll see these patterns, whereas the black church with a different set of experiences will not be captive to that hyper-individualism, whereas the white church could be and has been captive to that hyper-individualism, which leads to this disconnect of one group saying there is structural sin and the other group saying there is no structural sin, because they're being taught different things in these communities. Hmm. I'm speaking with Professor Sun Chan Ra of Fuller Theological Seminary about the future of the evangelical church. Uh, Professor Ra, and I know you're familiar with this term. Uh, I think it goes back to King. You may go back even further, I'm not sure. But a lot of people have said that, yeah. that 11 o'clock Sunday morning is the most segregated hour. And yeah. in America, and I understand the sentiments, but, but since church, as you've discussed has a sociological as well as a theological dynamic yeah. is this critique as damning as it may seem at face value well we have to we do have you're right we do have to look a little deeper into that statistic that it is a statistical reality that we are still a very segregated institution uh, it's 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 improved over the last few years, mainly because the numbers in our communities have changed and we're becoming more diverse in almost every neighborhood. And therefore, it's reflecting some diversity in the local church. But it is still one of the most segregated institutions in the United States. Now, I, I do have kind of two different angles on this. The first is that the number of integrated churches is so low that doesn't feel appropriate, that, you know, certainly we can do better than where we are right now, that we need to improve the number of integrated churches. But the second part of that is recognizing there are different reasons why churches are segregated. So, um, you know, I, 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 I give this example of my mom. My mom passed away this past year, uh, and she was an older Korean woman, an immigrant, whose primary language is Korean. And so as a Korean immigrant whose primary language is Korean, uh, six days a week, she spoke English in a broken English at a in a service industry position. Uh, but one day a week, she got to go to a church where her language was affirmed and her cultural identity was affirmed. Now, I think there's a value to that. I think there's a value to immigrant communities, marginalized communities, communities that have experienced oppression to find that safe space of the church. And it is, of course, the reason why the black church has flourished. The African-American church uh, coming out of the oppression of slavery, needing that place where spirituality and their spiritual walk could be affirmed in their cultural identity. That's why we have immigrant churches where their identity and their cultural identity and their language is affirmed in that community. Uh, there is an, an important, I think, necessary space uh, for the black church and the immigrant church, the Korean church, the Spanish-speaking congregation. Those are important spaces for empowerment, for, um, for those who have suffered uh, to gather together and to find healing. Um, I'm, just, I'm just thinking the both and. We need 
churches mm-hmm. that minister to those that have suffered, the marginalized communities for safe spaces, but we also need more of these multi-ethnic communities. I think we can do both, and I think the need is for both. And isn't that uh, further complicated just by the whole notion of intersectionality? And like, say, if you take a a, a, a Korean male, an African American male, uh, yeah. a white male, and you sort of, however defined, plop racism right in their lap, how they exp- yeah. how they experience that might be different, uh, and quite possible that safe space that you just articulated uh, in churches could also differ. So, wouldn't it? It would be understandable, I guess, in some regards, if if some of those people gravitated, you know, to those traditional safe spaces. Absolutely. And some of that is not just race. It's cultural differences. uh, It's economic, socioeconomic differences. Um, In fact, I would say right now um, it might be harder to to pull together churches that cross socioeconomic boundaries than maybe even race and ethnicity. Um, I pastored a church for many years that was ethnically and racially very diverse. Uh, But we were in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So everybody was a Harvard grad and Yale grad and Stanford grad. And I'm looking around the table and it's ethnically, racially diverse. There's a Puerto Rican American at the table. There's a African American, there's a Caribbean American, an Asian American, white American. This is my leadership team. But one's a Dartmouth grad and the other is a MIT grad and the other is a Harvard grad. Um, So we were able to cross the racial barriers but the socioeconomic educational barrier was much more difficult to cross. And that's where it gets, again, layer upon layer of this, of how can we not only do multiracial and cross-racial boundaries and multi-ethnic and cross-ethnic boundaries, but multicultural is actually another level that I think we also need to think about because that includes socioeconomic education levels and the like. And that barrier might be even harder to cross than even some of the racial barriers. I recently heard you in, in another interview talk about growing up in a multi-ethnic neighborhood mm-hmm. and that you share a commonality of poverty. Yeah. But instead yeah. of that being something that the community sort of coalesced around, it became a source of division. And, and I wondered if you saw similarities in a macro context with the American church in that it ought to be yeah. this sort of coalescing around the larger purpose, but yet yeah. uh, the church at times, the Christian church seems to be preoccupied with other, my words, in uh, less important issues. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. So, yeah, the background, of course, is that I grew up in inner city Baltimore. Um, and uh, the commonality we had, it was actually a very racially mixed neighborhood. It was a third black, a third white, and third recent immigrants, mostly Koreans. And all of us were on food stamps. We were all living together in subsidized housing. Uh, and so we had poverty in common. But it was really amazing how segregated we had become, even in the common experience of poverty. Um, I described that in the elementary school, we all got along pretty, pretty well. By junior high school, you started seeing different lunch tables with different groups sitting together. And by senior high school, you had full-blown full gangs uh, along racial lines. And so that was kind of the unfortunate reality that I was, I was growing up in. I'm watching this and I'm thinking, why can't we all get along? We all have poverty in common. And I agree with you that that kind of common space is what the church should provide. Um, across the racial, ethnic, cultural division, we have a common spirituality. We have a common uh, sense of understanding that we are all made in the image of God. Uh, we have a common understanding that we are broken people in need of help uh, from from God. Uh, and so that should unite us. 
Uh, and yet what we have seen is that the churches don't unite along these spiritual lines. In fact, we, do, we divide along sociological and political ones. And that's where I think, you know, for me as a former pastor and as a professor who teaches at a seminary, that's where my pain and grief is, uh, that what should bring us together, uh, the sense of unity as broken people in need of God, uh, that that actually drives us apart in so many ways. And um, it's, it's I, I, I don't know, I want better for the church. I want better for religious communities to show and demonstrate better than what we've been doing. Well, what, what is your take? And I'm, I'm going to sort of use this sort of generically. What is your take on, on the church's role? What should the church's role be in terms of advocacy? And I'll let you define advocacy yeah. however you choose to. Sure. Uh, well, in the Bible, I think there are so many incidents and places where God calls his people, whether they are prophets or just, and, and, and the prophets speaking to the people, uh, for example, to care for the alien and immigrant among them. That's all over the Bible. Uh, to care for the very least of our brothers and our sister. Again, Jesus himself said those words. Uh, there are so many places where uh, the example of, of what it means to be God's people is to demonstrate uh, compassion, mercy, and justice towards the other. And that should happen on multiple levels. It should happen in the, in the self-sacrifice of maybe, maybe we have a little less so that those who have nothing could have a little more. Uh, it should be so that in, in the same way that the Old Testament prophets uh, stood up on, on behalf of those who were the marginalized, uh, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick, the widows and the orphans, repeatedly, we see in the scriptures, we see in the Bible, that God calls his people through his prophets uh, to stand up for the poor. Uh, and I think we've lost some of that, but that is really what God's people are called to do. Uh, and that's advocacy. Um, and I, I like to look at it as prophets in the Bible were not necessarily future fortune tellers. They didn't say, you know, the stock market will be at this number in 10 years or, you know, the following six things are going to happen. Sometimes they did to say somebody's going to get conquered and somebody's going to come and defeat you. Uh, but really, the, the main role of the prophet in the Bible is to speak God's heart and to speak God's words to the people. And I would say that advocacy is that. Advocacy is speaking on behalf of God, particularly for those who are the disenfranchised, the marginalized. And uh, that's the role of the church, to speak on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves or whose voices have been silenced. Um, and I think we've lost that in the church. We speak up for ourselves, for our rights, for our religious freedom, and for our right to do, you know, not wear a mask or, you know, our right to gather as a congregation. Uh, but some of the best work of the Bible is when the prophets and the people of God speak up on behalf of others. That's an advocacy that I think is an important witness to the, to the world. What is the doctrine of discovery, and, and how has it impacted much of the Western church into the present moment? Take yeah, so I write a—what's that? I said take, much, take as much time as you need on that. <laughs> yeah, this is the complex one. There's yeah. multiple layers here. Um, well, I'll begin with the, fra the theological framework, which is our society— and our um, social reality are driven by imagination and narratives. 
Uh, and there's good work on this, Seawright Mills, uh, in the sociological imagination. Uh, there's work that's been done by Willie Jennings and by uh, William Cavanaugh, uh, uh, Walter Brueggemann. These are kind of theologians who've talked about the imagination. Um, and the idea is that um, there is a capacity that human beings have to envision and imagine a world. Now, sometimes that's good, imagining a better world. But sometimes it's dysfunctional. We imagine a world that benefits us or benefits our people group only. And uh, what the doctrine of discovery was, was a dysfunctional, diseased um, imagination that got embedded into the worldview of the West that actually generated some significant problems in Western history. So the doctrine of discovery was a series of papal bulls in the 15th century. And the church made several declarations called the Doctrine of Discovery. And uh, the theological background of this was the assumption that European bodies were made in the image of God and non-European bodies were not. And so the doctrine allowed, uh, this kind of pronouncement from the, from the church allowed, uh, for example, the uh, Portuguese uh, traders to go to Africa and say, hey, I'm made in the image of God, but these African bodies are not. And therefore I can take these African bodies as slaves. So that's the imagination, a dysfunctional imagination that says, I view the world in this way, the church has informed my imagination, and therefore out of this dysfunctional imagination, I'm gonna have these really harmful actions, which is the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade. The second part of that was written to uh, the Spanish empire, where they, allowed their subject, Christopher Columbus, to go into, quote unquote, the new world. And because Columbus and the Spanish Empire, they were made in the image of God, but nobody else really is. So Columbus sees this continent. And at that time, there were millions of lives, as well as thousands of civilization. But what does Columbus say? I discovered America. What's he de uh, declared it? Uh, you can't discover something that, well, well people are already there. <laughs> Millions of people are already, that's not discovery, that's stealing land from people that are already there. Uh, and so the doctrine of discovery creates an imagination, a way of thinking about the world that centers the European body as precious and valuable, made in the image of God. But all these other bodies, the native body, the African body, as less valuable, not made in the image of God, and therefore you can dominate the African body and take them as slaves, dominate the native body and push them away and create a new world uh, that, dis, uh, that disavows the, the native body. And so a lot of the atrocities that have emerged in our nation's history uh, slavery and genocide, slavery of the black body and the genocide of the native body, can actually find its origins in this dysfunctional theological imagination that says European bodies are more valuable than other bodies in the world. As listening to your answer, I'm I'm thinking specifically about, uh, say, the Monroe Doctrine, Manifest Destiny. Yeah. Aren't those disciples yeah. of of this of this doctrine of discovery? Exactly. That's what I mean by imagination gets embedded and you operate out of that imagination. And so especially manifest destiny, if you think about the language around manifest destiny, that we have a almost a religious destiny, right? I mean, that's it was a lot of religious language around manifest destiny. Uh, you know, you think about the image that was oftentimes used in colonial times of the city set on a hill. 
And uh, I, you can, you know, that was said by the governor of Massachusetts overlooking the city of Boston. And that's why the major neighborhood in Boston is what? Beacon Hill. That's why the major street in Boston is what? Beacon Street. So this imagination of the European body being precious and valuable and holding the image of God, and the goal, therefore, is to shine that light towards others, city on a hill, to take that goodness and expand it across the continent, manifest destiny. Um, and that gives the, uh, the imperative uh, to go out and conquer, to say, hey, if you really are those made in the image of God, so what if you take over native land? So what if you wipe out native communities? Uh, those made in the image of God are allowed to do that. And so a lot of our expansionist, uh, American exceptionalist ideas and American triumphalism ideas and even the sense of we are destined to be the arsenal of democracy, the, the great uh, liberator of the world, uh, that's all theological religious language. And it comes from a dysfunctional imagination that says the European body has that capacity and it is necessary and um, even a, an imperative for that European body to expand its boundaries and borders, manifest destiny, uh, Monroe Doctrine, because it's part of our inherent goodness as European Americans to dominate the brokenness in the world. And again, it comes out of that dysfunctional imagination that is repeatedly emphasized throughout American history. Uh, Professor Ra, in a, in a quote that's uh, attributed to uh, Archibald McLeish, he, he, mm. religion is at its best when it makes us ask hard questions of ourselves. It is at mm. its worst when it deludes itself into thinking we have all the answers for everybody else. Now, yeah. assuming that you accept that quote as a truism, I'm going to make that leap. What, <laughs> what, in your view, does the evangelical church of today need to do to bring about that thought? That's a great question. And I make the distinction very similar to, to the quote, the distinction between truth possessed and truth pursued. And I would say one of the problematic elements of the American, and I would specify white evangelical church, is this assumption of truth possessed, which means that if I own the truth, if I possess the truth, then in the possession and ownership of that truth, when I encounter somebody else, I almost automatically assume they're wrong because I own the truth. And my job is not to figure out more about the truth. It's to impose my truth upon others my imposition of my truth that European bodies are superior, the imposition of my truth that America is exceptional and therefore we can do no wrong in the world, the imposition of my truth that um, Americans are, uh, America should be for native whites only. So these are truths that might be wrong, but we assume that they are true and that we own these truths and that it is our imperative to impose these truths on others. But I think what we're missing is the truth possessed, uh, not the truth possessed, but the truth pursued argument, which is, of course, there is truth. And that's in the Bible. And that's in the community. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. There's truth. But I can never claim that I own that truth. Uh, well, who am I as a mere mortal, as, as someone with my limitation and my limited capacity as a, as a human, human being? Who am I to claim that I actually own the truth? Uh, my job is to pursue that truth. And that is where I think we've lost some of the, the value of faith. The value of faith is to know that God has, God is truth. 
um, there is truth. Uh, but I don't. I never owned that. Once I own it, faith is gone because now I have it. It's in my possession. My job as a person of faith is to pursue that truth, to to seek after it, and to pursue after it. And I think evangelicalism has as its one of its disease imagination attributes is the assumption that evangelicals own the truth, have the corner and market on the truth, rather than our call is to pursue that truth and seek after that truth. Um, and again, all throughout scripture, you'll see this. Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, not own the kingdom of God or possess the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he doesn't say you are the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You don't own me, Jesus would not say. Jesus wouldn't say that, he, that we own him, but we can pursue him. We can follow him. That's his call. Follow me. Uh, follow Christ. Take up your cross and follow me. So I think evangelicalism has lost that um, edge of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It doesn't mean we own the truth. It means we pursue it. I, I, I'm listening to you, and I'm, in, uh, in your words, I'm thinking about um, uh, the book of Zechariah, where he talks about being a prisoner of hope. And mm. uh, I wonder if you saw yourself as a prisoner of hope as it relates to um, what you'd like to see happen in the evangelical church in the 21st century. Wow, great question. Um, I wrote a book a few years ago about lament, and that lament is the appropriate response to the reality of suffering in the world. Um, and I, I take that uh, spiritual discipline that's in all over the Bible very, very seriously, the spiritual discipline of lament. And I think, for me, the hopefulness comes out of my capacity to lament, uh, which if I had given up and if I said I'm done, I wouldn't lament. I would just shake the dust off my feet and move on. And the fact that I still lament over Christianity in the United States, the fact that I lament over evangelicalism, it's not a doom saying necessarily. It's really the hopeful possibility that I can't redeem this. <laughs> I personally don't see a, a way out in many ways, uh, but maybe God hasn't given up on us yet. Uh, and that to me is you know, a, a public morality, the hopefulness of a morality that says, I don't know if I can fix this single-handedly, but I'm going to trust in a God who maybe is able to fix this in a way that I can't even dream of. And so the fact that I lament or respond to the pain that is in the world, the brokenness that is in the world, the dysfunctional imagination that I see centering whiteness, uh, centering American exceptionalism, those are broken things. And I lament those things because I haven't given up on that. I haven't given up on that community. Um, you know, the easiest thing would be to shake the dust off my feet and walk away. But the hopefulness is what I can't do, which is to redeem that brokenness, is something that God is able to do. Finally, I, I wanted to ask, um, you know, we, we talked about uh, a number of things in the lowercase e and evangelical, uppercase e and evangelical, um, sort of the way that the that people of color may be moving out of, of, the, of this effort. But mm. I, I, I guess in, in your work, what um, would you say uh, to evangelicals of color? Because... You just talked about, you know, pursuing, possessing versus pursuing the truth. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you worry that evangelicals of color, in their pursuit of truth, might think they possess it, and that might also lead to them sort of being the opposite of what they see their white brethren doing, which is still out of step with where you would have evangelicals be? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it all, all these things always cut in multiple directions, as in, um, if I am able to identify a brokenness, but I don't address that brokenness, I will probably be susceptible to that brokenness. And so if I see the brokenness of truth possessed, and I don't deal with that tendency in my life, then I will probably practice that out. I'll probably demonstrate that out at some point in my life. Uh, and that's, I think, just kind of human nature. Um, the inability at times to, to self-correct and course correct. Um, I will say though that what I've seen more of is not so much becoming like the very person we're trying to reject uh, or becoming like uh, the failures that we've seen. Uh, what I'm seeing are a lot of hurt people and hurt people that have been damaged by expressions of faith uh, that that doesn't care for them, that doesn't consider their feelings and consider their pain. Uh, that has been what's been heartbreaking and heart-wrenching for me. So if we were to identify the evangelicals of color uh, who either have left or are on their way out or are staying in but suffering greatly, um, at, at this moment, I'm not worried about, hmm, are we going to get them to stop doing the, the, the same thing that their oppressors have done? Uh, that feels like three or four steps ahead. Uh, the immediate thing is let's get healing uh, to the community that has suffered greatly. Uh, and so my heart for evangelicals of color, yes, down the road, let's make sure we process this so we're not repeating the mistakes of our oppressor. Uh, but at this moment, a part of that resistance to that to becoming that oppressor is actually finding the healing more my immediate admonition to evangelicals of color yes let's be careful because we can become the oppressor as easily as anything because we're all broken people but let's also find our healing because you know hurt people hurt people so let's not be those hurt people um and that's part of i think the work that i think um maybe the church can recover uh, the, the work of healing for broken people. <clears throat> Professor Sun Chen Ra, thank you so much, sir, for joining me today on the Public Rally. I much appreciated your, your very wise counsel, sir. Thank you. It's good to be on with you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.